everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast, and we are reunited this week to talk about the Gospel of Luke. Now, we don't plan these out more than, you know, a few weeks in advance, and so I noticed that we've done the book of Acts, or at least I think we have done the book of Acts. I believe we did. But now we're getting to Luke, so we're doing these books in the wrong order. Yes. Uh, But one of the things that we'll highlight during this episode is you really can't talk about Luke without talking about Acts and vice versa. Uh, and I would say it's it's more true even about Luke talking about Acts than Agreed. it is doing Acts and talking about Luke because so much of Luke looks forward to what happens in Acts. And and indeed that's that's how Jesus orients his ministry in Luke is pointing towards what's going to happen in Acts. So maybe it is appropriate that we did them in the wrong order, but we certainly didn't plan it. Right. You know, it's not like, so what you're making a contention already. This is bold. So you're not saying that they wrote the book, Luke, and made the movie and then said, wow, this is a blockbuster. Let's go ahead and do a follow-on. Your point is, and your thesis, which with which I agree, is that Luke has acts in mind when he's writing this story. Well, I this is going to get really interesting when it comes to the date. This is why I think Luke is actually a very difficult book to date. Because, yes, I think he has experienced Acts by the time he writes Luke. And we'll talk about that coming mm-hmm. up later. But yeah, I, I do not think it was a matter of Luke was such a smashing success that he got a huge book advance right. and wrote, wrote Acts a as a follow-up. Yeah. No, I don't think that. I think it was a two-parter from the beginning. So let me introduce this. I always like to think of these books in terms of superlatives. So all the, all the books of the Bible are graduating from high school. What, what is the superlative that the other books vote for it? And I would have to say that, yeah, I said this when we did Acts. Acts is where sermon series go to die. Okay, <laughs> I have never heard someone make it through Acts without truncating the last you know, third of the book because it takes so long to preach through Acts. Right. And if you think that's true about Acts, then you won't believe uh, how futile it is to try to preach through Luke exegetically because it is much it, it is as long or longer and it is much more repetitive mm-hmm. than Acts. At least in Acts you have new stuff happening all the time. I was talking right. to somebody the other day that was trying to read Luke for the first time and they were saying there are so many healing miracles and there are so many repetitive uh, little vignettes that you get and that's true in Luke. And hopefully we'll talk a little bit about why that's the case. But if I were to give a superlative to Luke, I would say it's the most likely to be your least favorite gospel <laughs> in my experience. That's a good one. And I don't say that for any disrespect as, as it being a book of the Bible. I'm just saying when people read through it, it's usually the most likely to be their least favorite gospel. And really, one of the points of the podcast is we would like to change that. right? We'd like it to be tied um, with at least one of the other gospels by the end of this podcast. You know, that's really a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but you know, there are people that love the Gospel of John. It's so very different. Mm -hmm. There are people that love the staccato action of Mark, those short pericopes that move. They're just hard-hitting action packed. And then, of course, Matthew, known as the teacher's gospel. And Luke is very different. If you've read, uh, and I'm not thinking this is very common, but if you've read Herodotus, if you've read any of the ancient Greek histories, you're going to love Luke. 
Mm-hmm. But there's a reason people haven't read Herodotus, and so you're right. It's probably the least likely gospel to be loved. Yeah, it's easy to get bogged down in, and uh, it's very long. But one of the things that's interesting about it is because of who the author is and because of what his goal is, it is very different than the other Gospels. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of reasons why we have four Gospels. And uh, they each bring something different. They tell the same story. They fundamentally agree in the nature of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. But they come from very different vantage points. So maybe the best place to start would be a little bit of background information on Luke. Well, there's, as with everything, there's disputes about this. So on a minimalist point of view, you could simply say this, to quote a a liberal scholar, is there's nothing in the book of Luke Acts that tells you who this Luke is. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing that necessitates in the text itself that you know who this person is. However... For various other reasons, church tradition, very early, by the way, church traditions uh, being one of them, is this Luke is always thought to be the physician who was converted somewhere near Troas in uh, Paul's second missionary journey and who then traveled with him and was with him through the rest of his ministry, probably through the end of his life. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of reason to believe that, but you're right, the text doesn't go into a great uh, deal about it. But the the church for 2,000 years has accepted this is Luke the physician, the companion of Paul. Right, and there are certain things we know from the text about him, uh, even if we don't know his identity, and then there's certain things we know from church history about him. And from other books in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things would be that uh, he is an educated Greek-speaking person right. in the first century. So there's, n- I, I don't think there's much debate that Luke uh, is both not an eyewitness, but is also a very early disciple of Christ. Right. So you see his writing is very elevated, it is very proper, it's, it, it, especially when you read it in uh, comparison with some of the other books in the New Testament. A lot of technical terms, Greek He's words. clearly from a more educated class, a mm-hmm. more professional class. The other thing that we know about him is he was not an eyewitness, but he has collected eyewitness testimony and documents, and um, he's traveled, the tradition tells us that he's traveled with Paul. Paul tells us that they traveled together. And uh, he actually introduces some eyewitness first-person material in the second half of Acts. Right. So when we're looking at the Gospel of Luke, he likely didn't experience anything that happened in uh, the Gospel. Was, was right. not an eyewitness to Christ. Uh, probably was not in Jerusalem, I would imagine, during most of this time. And, and even if he had heard of some of this, the the tactics that he used to write the gospel were to go around and do research on what had happened. And we see this when you open up the Luke to the very beginning of it. You see a, a different opening than the other gospels. And this is very much like ancient historiography. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So right off the bat, what Luke is saying is there are accounts that are circulating of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Right. Likely, one of those being Mark, and likely that just being other stories and things that are floating around, too. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But 
Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Here's an interesting point of difference between the Gospels. So Luke opens this way, and he emphasizes this point again in the opening of Acts. John says something very similar in the beginning of his gospel. He wants you to know uh, that the things that they have seen and that they have witnessed are true. And then at the end, he says this twice. I have written this so that you might know right. that he's the Christ and have life in his name. But they go about proving this. They go about wanting you to know this in two really different ways. Mm-hmm. John, as an eyewitness, wants you to know these things both historically, but maybe even more importantly for John, um, philosophically. He wants you to know this is true. It makes sense. The Word becomes flesh. He says these things. He does these things. It makes sense that he's the Christ. Luke wants you to know this because it is historically verifiable from the sources of people who saw it happen. Two different approaches and two very valuable approaches. The other thing that's kind of interesting about this is Luke is using material like a journalist or like a historian would exactly. today. But And there's a lot of literature about this that we don't really have time to get into, but Gospels are kind of their own unique genre. Mm-hmm. This is not newspaper journalism, but it's also not Plutarch, where you have kind of historical biography that teaches a moral lesson. It's right. somewhere in between the two of those. I think it's likely that one of the sources Luke used is the Gospel of Mark. And mm-hmm. a lot of people think this, this I is agree true. With that. What, what are the reasons that people think that? There are just a lot of clues in the uh, material itself that appear to come from Mark. There's a high degree of Mark that shows up in Luke. Now, you can talk in a minute about all the unique things in Luke. There's a lot of unique things. But in general, uh, Luke shares a lot of Markan material, mm-hmm. and so it seems that he may well have been familiar with it. I also think if you date Luke into the early 60s, for example, that's my opinion, but people would disagree. I think Mark is written by consensus earlier than that. So it's not unreasonable that Luke had access to Mark. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think you just see a lot of Mark material in Luke. Yes, I think for a couple of reasons, uh, the textual dependence, I think, is probably the strongest. Uh-huh. In that there is, I, I forget the percentage, but there's about half the book of Mark, or maybe slightly more, mm-hmm. that appears in the book of Luke with some changes. So sometimes Luke will put things in a different spot. Sometimes he'll clean up the grammar. Sometimes he'll tell the story slightly differently. But there, there's a majority of the Gospel of Mark that appears in Luke. And the same thing actually is true in Matthew to a right. slightly lesser extent. Mm-hmm. But it's likely that both of them had access to Mark's Gospel. Now the other thing for Luke is, depending on how, how their journeys went, it's likely that he also had access to Mark himself. Right. So if Mark is John Mark, who goes on the missionary journeys, then at some point towards the end of Paul's life, Luke and John Mark probably end up back together at some point, um, traveling again after John Mark is restored with Paul. Whether that's in Rome, whether that's in later journeys headed back towards Jerusalem, this is a conjecture. But it's likely at some point that their paths crossed. If memory serves, 2 Timothy, which is very end of Paul's life, he 
says, only Luke is with me. He says to Timothy, do your best to come here before winter, bring my parchments, bring my scroll, and bring John Mark. Mm -hmm. He's very useful to me in the ministry. So I think your conjectures right. has some basis that Luke and Mark are reunited again, if not before. Right. At the end of possibly Paul's life. Possibly in Jerusalem, possibly at the end of Paul's life. Right. Now, I want to talk for a moment about date, the date of Luke and or Acts, because I think what you've said is is a is the standard uh, date, and I, I think I agree with it, but it's a tough date to establish. Right. And one of the reasons is because it depends on whether we think that Luke and Acts were written and released together, mm -hmm. because there is a limit on how early Acts can be written, That's which right. is essentially is helpful. the events at the end of Acts. Now, there is controversy over when the end of Acts happened, because it, it doesn't seem like at the end of Acts that Paul is in the same kind of imprisonment where he is, and we'll talk about what he's doing later, but he's preaching the gospel and he's explaining the scriptures unhinderedly, is what it, kind of this little made-up adverb at the end, without hindrance. And that sure seems like house arrest, whereas the end of 2 Timothy seems like prison. Are you and I on record, I can't remember this, that we agree on this, that the end of Acts is the first imprisonment, that he was released, he was rearrested at some time, and then in very different circumstances. Second Timothy sounds nothing like the end mm -hmm. of the book of Acts. Are we in agreement that there were two imprisonments? I think we're in general agreement okay. on this. I, you know, some people think that he got out and went somewhere. I'm not sure. I believe that maybe he got out and stayed there and then got rearrested, or you know, mm -hmm. an appeal didn't go through or something. But his his imprisonment comes in two phases. And they are very different. And it, and it must have been a pretty good span of time, too, for him to be in Rome. So, yeah, I think two imprisonments. Now, we do disagree on some dating of some book, but now I can't remember which one it is. Well, the other thing about that, I don't remember that either. I, uh, but I do think that if memory serves me again, I should have researched this. But I think if you date this... Clearly, this needs to be before 70 AD. If, if you're a conservative scholar, you think that there's prophecy here. You don't think it's after the destruction. Some people do think it's after the destruction. I, I destruction, get that, but, but we would say before, we think it's before destruction. And so if he has a mild imprisonment at the end of Acts and then a harsh imprisonment later, it seems to me that, was it 64 that Nero burned down Rome and blamed the Christians, and that's when things really turned on the Christians. Yes, right around there. Which makes me think a pre-64 on Acts, letting him out, and a post-64, oh, you Christians are bad, and mm -hmm. then the harsh imprisonment. Now, that's purely conjecture, but it seems to me 64 might be an important date here. Yes, I think so, too. So most people think that Peter and Paul were both put to death in the reign of Nero in Rome, probably in the mid to early, late 60s, mm -hmm. right? So it ha we have to have this happen before 68, 69, um, and it's probably after 64. Mm -hmm. So sometime in that time frame, they're put to death. They're, at the end of Acts, Paul is in no danger of being put to death. Right. And in fact, it's, it's not even in the narrative arc that right. Paul is about to be put to death. So it makes me think that Luke does not even see this on the horizon, which would be... Uh, a mild imprisonment of some right. kind. Now, the thing that we can always speculate about that would be so interesting to know is, what does Luke do after this? Right. I mean, he goes to work on his book, I guess, 
But what what is he doing after this? Is he back in Jerusalem? Is he visiting the churches that they've been to? We have no idea. And we don't uh-huh. really have any ch- good church tradition to tell us what it was that he was doing. We, we don't know how the story ends. Um, so I think probably a date as late as possible, but as close as possible to that 64 break mm-hmm. is probably the best bet for Luke. Right. We need as much of Paul's life as possible. I think it's unlikely that he writes Luke before traveling with Paul. I think that's very unlikely. Right. So, and then you have to have Mark having been written. So, you know, it has to be after that as well. So you get in some bookends here that I think the early to mid-60s is a good date for this. And it certainly seems to me the two years that Paul was uh, in a rental house confined in Rome would be an awfully good time to write an account. Exactly. That would have been a very good time. So with that established, I do want to go back to this point that you made earlier that there are some really unique things about Luke. And there are unique things about all the Gospels. So if you look and you say, what what would we not have if we didn't have right. this Gospel? There's some really memorable things in each of the Gospels. If we didn't have Mark, we wouldn't have the guy running away naked uh, <laughs> when they're taking Jesus and arresting him. And and that would be a real shame if we it didn't have that. A huge shame. Uh, Luke has some some things like that that probably are a little more familiar I think Luke, of all the Gospels, has some of the most memorable stories that are only in Luke. Right. So let me list off a few of the events that are only attested to in Luke, and then I'll, I'll mention a few of the parables as well. So starting at the very beginning of Luke, the birth story is, is in so much more detail in Luke. Right. So you, we, don't get, we don't get Zechariah and Elizabeth in any of the other Gospels. Mm-hmm. It's just John the Baptist bursts onto the scene full grown. So we don't get the prophecy, we don't get Mary's visit, uh, and, and then we get none of Jesus' childhood either. We don't get him presented in the temple, we right. don't get him uh, going to visit and getting lost right. as a kid. Um, we don't have at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we don't have the miraculous catching of fish. Right? We get this at the end in John's gospel right. after the resurrection, but we don't get this at the beginning. The story of the ten lepers who mm-hmm. are healed, Zacchaeus only appears in Luke's gospel. What would we do without that song? Yeah, if we hadn't had that song preserved. You know, and, and I want to stop here on Zacchaeus for a minute because this really illustrates some of Luke's unique focus in the gospel that the others do not uh, share. And I'm reminded of what John says where he says, you know, you, we can't say everything. If, you, if, if right. everything was written down, the whole world would be full of books about what Jesus did. But these things have been written so that you might believe. So... It's, it's kind of, it's a, it's a fallacy, it's a tempting fallacy to say that the gospel writers just wrote down everything that they could remember, everything right. that they saw. Right. That's not true. But on the other side, it's not true to say that they completely politicized and theologized what they say exactly. because of what they, want, what they want it to mean. Right. So we believe that these things happened and that they mean something. And that the gospel writers did have a little bit of selection when it came to crafting this gospel to tell the story that they wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. And we know that because they left things out and they added things that happened in. Zacchaeus is a great example of this. Zacchaeus is an evil tax collector who is greedy, who climbs up in the sycamore tree. Jesus goes to his house and forgives him. 
And Zacchaeus, his life has changed. He decides to pay back all the debts that he had collected beyond what, what he was supposed to collect. It's interesting to me that Matthew doesn't tell that story because Matthew is a tax collector. Right. So it's at least by tradition, Matthew is a tax collector. So you would think that telling on one of his old tax collector buddies, this story would be near and dear to his heart. Mm-hmm. Except that, you know, his own conversion is really the story of what he's telling in, in that right. gospel. And it's about discipleship and everything. Luke is really interested in two things. Physical characteristics are a big deal in Luke. Mm-hmm. And money is a big deal in Luke. Right. Both of these things are combined in the Zacchaeus story. So, and we don't have time to go into this. This is not a Zacchaeus podcast. But, you know, Luke's description of Zacchaeus is really interesting. And this gets into an uh, area of ancient scholarship called physiognomy. Mm-hmm. Which means you can tell something about a person by their physical characteristics. We don't think this is true. We call this stereotyping now. But it was right. very common in the ancient world that in literary descriptions of a person, right. the description of their outward appearance should tell you something about their inward reality, the state of mm-hmm. their soul. And this is certainly true about Zacchaeus. He is not just small. He is, there is something spiritually wrong with him. Mm-hmm. He, there's there's a smallness that evokes an evilness, a stuntedness in some there's, sense. He's he's warped. Yeah. And Luke gives us this description about him that we already know from the get go. This that he is not just um, you know he's not just decided to cheat people. He he is spiritually and inwardly evil. Mm-hmm. And when he is forgiven he decides to repay the money that he's taken, which is a huge deal for Luke. Luke is warning all over the place that riches can imperil your soul. Right. So I say this, this is a story that only Luke tells, but it is a nexus of themes that, that Luke uniquely That's wants to deal with in the gospel. And I, and I think that several of these stories are that way. Another one of the same kind is the rich man and Lazarus. Right. This is only told in Luke's gospel, it is a warning about riches, but it is also a very interesting statement from a physician about the power of the scriptures over the power of someone who rises from the dead. Mm-hmm. Another important theme for Luke is the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and the spiritual realm. So those two stories, um, the road to Emmaus at the end, the raising of the widow of Nain's son, Mary and Martha... The women in Jesus' life have a a very strong role in Luke's gospel, uh, whereas they don't in some of the other gospels. Mm -hmm. Here are the parables. This is almost hard to believe that these parables are only told in Luke's gospel. The Good Samaritan. If it wasn't for Luke, you would not know the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, The Lost Coin. Prodigal Son is only in Luke. Rich Man and Lazarus. Mm -hmm. Pharisee and the Tax Collector. Those are only told in Luke. It would be very, I mean, we wouldn't know it because we wouldn't know what we don't know. But can you imagine right. those parables not being in our Bibles? Yeah, just the riches of uh, what Luke has to pass on. It's amazing. Well, let's hit a few of the themes then. Or uh, are you going to do an o- overview of the book for when you're reading it? Well, yes. Uh, and it's very short here in the sense that Luke architects this almost geographically. The first two chapters are the birth narrative, hundred more than 100 verses. 
The next two chapters, three and four, as Cole alluded to, is the preparation for ministry. You have kind of a little childhood and getting ready for ministry. Chapters five through nine focus on Jesus' ministry around Galilee. And then in chapter 10, the book turns, as does Jesus, and resolutely sets himself to go to Jerusalem. And so chapters 10 through 19 are all happening. Uh, All these events are happening basically as he makes his way from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then chapters 20 through 24 end his ministry and life in Jerusalem. So it's a very simple arc geographically in this. And Mm -hmm. I think Luke, instead of going back and telling you all the trips back and forth and the different festivals, he simply chooses to give you a narrative that has a little continuity geographically Mm -hmm. in it. It's interesting he arranges Luke and Acts this way. Mm -hmm. Acts is also arranged geographically. It almost makes you wonder, this again is speculation, it it almost makes you wonder if Luke is doing kind of regional reporting at this point, where Mm. he's getting stories from different groups of people on what happened in those areas. It it just seems when you read it Uh like that's happening. Right. and that, to me, is one of, the, one of the things that's really helpful when you start to get into conversations about discrepancies or differences between the gospel accounts. They are organized differently. Uh, and so sometimes you have, well, was it one leper that was healed or was it two lepers that were healed? Mm-hmm. You know, and this seems to be the same story. So maybe it was the same story. And, and you know, a lot of times it's like Jesus healed a lot of different lepers <laughs> right. in the scriptures. And so... Uh, Knowing how the gospel writer is arranging their narrative is really helpful in going through the details. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Luke obviously is arranged according to geography, and that helps us to know that he's going to talk about the story of the healing that might be similar to another story of the healing that happened in this area, that happened in this place. Whereas Mark is a little bit more concerned with what happened after the next thing. It is a a more chronological uh, telling. And again, these, these can be thorny issues, but this is a real help when you read the Gospels, especially back to back to back. Mm-hmm. And you see something that looks a little bit like a discrepancy between the accounts. Sometimes it's just by nature of the fact that they are arranging these stories differently to reflect the historical events that happened in Jesus' life and ministry. Right. I also think you have to remember, Jesus preached the same sermon a lot of times. Jesus healed similar people many times. Mm-hmm. We just they're simply picking an incident to move the story along. And as John says, if you wrote down every healing Jesus did, you couldn't fit it all in here. That's exactly right. Well, I want to point out a couple of themes in the gospel. We've already talked about several of these, but he wants to present an orderly account. Mm-hmm. He gives detailed descriptions. Highlights the Holy Spirit. Here's an interesting stat. He uses Luke uses the Holy Spirit a hundred times in Luke and in Acts. And the rest of the gospel writers combined only mention the Spirit 60 times. Hmm. So there's a heavy emphasis on the work of the Spirit, especially in Acts. Acts right. has 65 mentions. Luke has 35 mentions. That's a lot. Uh, the danger of riches mm-hmm. and the witnessing to the message of Christ from the Old Testament. Those are the themes I had. What what did you have in addition? Yeah, just a couple. One is that detailed discussion of God's plan. There's there's a nice little passage in Luke 24, in about verse 46. uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Thus it is written, 
that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. There's a sense in Luke that he wants to emphasize the nature of God's plan. Mm -hmm. And one other interesting little note is the Greek word that's usually translated, it is necessary or it must happen, is used 101 times in the New Testament and 40 of those uses are in Luke and Acts. Wow. So you do get the sense that Luke sees this plan as an inevitable outworking of what mm-hmm. God is doing. But that also touched on something you might want to expand on is when Jesus said, it is written, and he explains to them that the Old Testament predicts it's connected to what his mission is and what God's plan is. Sometimes I think we don't think Luke looks back to the Old Testament as much as, say, Matthew does. Matthew gets all the credit for being the right. Old Testament guy, partially because he's, he's a Jew, probably Jewish, mm-hmm. and secondly because he highlights the fulfillment of prophecy early in his gospel. But it, it is... If you read through Luke and you pay close attention to what Jesus says about himself, you realize that Luke is showing us that Jesus is fulfilling the plan of God, which has been consistent all the way through the scriptures. So you see this really clearly at the end of Luke, and it opens up a lot of things that happened earlier in the book of Luke. So you get to the end, chapter 24. You get the story of the disciples, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Mm-hmm. Jesus is walking with them. They don't recognize him. And they're talking about what's happened. It's really kind of a funny little narrative uh-huh. because he walks up to them and they don't know, they don't recognize him. And he says, what are you guys talking about? And, and this is about a seven mile trip uh, that they're on. So, you know, a couple hours and... He's like, what are you guys talking about? And they were like, well, you know, we're talking about the things that have happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, what things? And they're like, you have got to be the only person in this area who doesn't know what just happened. And he's like, there's this guy, Jesus, and he was a prophet in power, and he was crucified, put to death, and we thought he was going to be the guy that finally redeemed Israel. Uh But it's been three days since that happened. No word. We heard some women say that, you know, maybe he had risen or wasn't in the tomb, but we haven't seen anything yet. And so Jesus, it says, then rebukes them. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explains to them uh, all of the scriptures that point to him. Well, he does this again at the end of Luke. Luke really wants you to see this. He really wants you to understand so at the very end of Luke, where you just quoted, he he walks through the, with the disciples the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He opens their mind to understand the scriptures, and he says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses to these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So Jesus again tells them that the scriptures bear witness to him. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, some of the commentators talk about what scriptures. Because there's nowhere in Luke that he directly tells you what reference outside of. And this is where I say this starts to open the book up. Right. The very beginning of Luke in chapter 4, it's Jesus' first act in public ministry. He goes into the, he goes into, uh, the synagogue. 
He takes the Isaiah scroll, turns right. to Isaiah chapter 61. And that passage says that the Spirit of God, again, there's a huge spirit theme here. The Spirit is referenced at the end of Luke 24. Mm -hmm. The Spirit is the main character through the book of Acts. The Spirit has anointed him to bring good news to the poor and to proclaim liberty to the captives. And Jesus then sits down and says, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he just takes that as a mantle upon his whole ministry, mm -hmm. that he is fulfilling what God has spoken through the prophets. Now Luke also, this is interesting, uh, will say that the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets. We don't see this kind of introduction except in the book of Hebrews, mm -hmm. where you know most people say it is written. Right. Or you know Matthew will say, so-and-so said, which is its own problem because sometimes he says so-and-so said and actually somebody else said that. And if that's not because he's making an error. That's an insight into how these guys thought about the Old Testament. One of the reasons we don't get specific you know, chapter and verses a lot of time in Luke is because the way they viewed prophecy was in totality. Right. So, you know, Matthew can say, thus said Isaiah, and you see, well, Hosea really said this. It's like, yes, because what they believed was Isaiah is one of the major prophets, and his themes are being expanded upon by these other prophets so right. that you don't just get one of them. You get the whole tradition which is pointing towards Christ. And that's what's being talked about here. The whole prophetic tradition and the history of Israel is pointing towards what Christ was going to do, that he would suffer and die and rise from the dead. Now, this theme becomes the recurring factor mm -hmm. in discipleship in Luke and in Acts. Mm -hmm. So you see Jesus doing this all through Luke. He is preaching from the scriptures that he is the Christ. Then he commissions the disciples to do this, that they are going to witness from the scriptures that he is the Christ. And then this happens in the book of Acts. So when the Spirit comes at Pentecost, what does Peter preach? He preaches from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He right. gives this big, long sermon. Then Stephen preaches. And what does he preach? He witnesses to the fact that the scriptures have proven that Jesus is the Christ. Then Paul becomes the main character. He gets converted in chapter 9. All of a sudden we see him in the synagogue. And what is he doing? He is proving to the Jews. He's witnessing that from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And that theme shows up over and over and over and over again until we get Paul, who is the disciple par excellence in Luke's writing. So all through Acts, we're building up to Paul's ministry. And what is his ministry? Well, if you look at the very end, Acts chapter 28 he is given a day to speak to the Jews in Rome. And when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. And from morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced and some were not. And Paul says the Holy Spirit was right in saying, he introduces scripture and it says he lived there two years at his own expense, welcoming all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So from the beginning to the end for Luke, he is, he is showing us that their ministry consisted of proving that Jesus was the Christ and that he did what he was supposed to do mm -hmm. using the Old Testament scriptures. So just like you said earlier, it is necessary means this has been God's plan from the very beginning. Right. And he has carried it through the prophetic tradition. He's carried it through the people of Israel. 
He's carried it through the life of Christ. And now the disciples of Christ are showing that this happened in accordance with God's word. This is what God said was going to happen, and it's what did happen, even though they missed it. They didn't see it at the time, but afterwards they realized it. And then this is how they did evangelism with Jews and with Greeks and with with, um, the Greek proselytes who had come and kind of become God-fearers. They were convincing them from the scriptures that this Mm -hmm. is Christ, the Messiah. So that's a theme I hadn't seen until recently, but it's really prominent in Luke when you're looking for it and when you begin to see it. Well, did you, when you taught uh, on the uh, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you probably brought that theme up. And right at the end, he says to them when they uh, tell him, well, we thought he was going to be the guy, but he wasn't. This is in 24 verse Mm -hmm. 25. He says, you foolish ones. Was it not necessary that the it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Mm-hmm. Again, this was this was part of the plan. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures. So that ties into what you're saying is Jesus himself took that approach and said, mm-hmm. This has been the plan all along, and Moses and all the prophets, the Greek is actually yeah. specific, all the prophets uh, testify to yeah. this. And that's an interesting thing for a non-Jew to be mm-hmm. pointing out. Yeah. Which I think is interesting in the sense that this is the way they were teaching it to mm-hmm. Jew and Greek alike. Yeah, I think so. You know, some people think that Luke doesn't have a great commission. So Matthew has a great commission. Mm-hmm. Going all the world, baptizing, making disciples, teaching them to obey. And Luke doesn't have a great commission like that. But Luke really does have a great commission. Mm -hmm. And this is it. Go and witness to the fact that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures, that he did what Moses and the prophets and the Psalms said that he was going to do, which was die and rise from the dead. That's exactly what they do in Acts. So Luke is showing us they fulfill this commission in Acts by doing just that. Exactly. They uh, beginning in Jerusalem, as he says in chapter 24, and spreading out to the world. You see that exact mm-hmm. same pattern in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, when I was preaching this text, I found it a little bit difficult to relate that to the modern day world, right? Because we don't do evangelism this way. We don't have a bunch of people wondering, how is the Old Testament going to be fulfilled? And then we get to share that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, you know, what do you think about that? So if this is one of the big takeaways from Luke and then from Acts, how should we think about that today? If we're trying to model them, if Luke presents, you know, the model disciple is someone who understands that this has been God's plan all along, witnesses from the scriptures. We don't have people that know the scriptures for the most part, unless we're witnessing to Jews. Right. What? What application is there for us in this, do you think? Well, I think this is really important personally. I know that there are a group of people who want to preach the resurrection. And I know that Paul did that at times. And that's it, disconnected Mm -hmm. from any historical story, any story of redemption. And I'm not opposed to that, but I don't think that you can get a holistic view of God without then at some point seeing the whole story. I like to teach the sweep of all of human history because I, when I came to Christ, I needed it to make sense and make sense of human existence in a way that other philosophies and religions did not make sense of human existence. And so one of the things I think we can do is we don't have to say, oh, you need to read the whole Old Testament 
before I can really tell you about Jesus. Well, that's mm -hmm. kind of ridiculous. And I do think you can witness to people about the resurrection, but I think the most powerful way to build our faith is to tell the story of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. I mean, hopefully people will read it, but you tell the story in such a way that you realize this isn't just some Jewish guy 2,000 years ago who died, was raised from the dead, and that's the whole story? That's the one historical event? No, it's actually part of a great sweep that makes sense of human existence. That's why I think at least telling the story mm -hmm. of the Old Testament is incredibly important because it situates Jesus in a context that makes sense of who we are and where we came from. Mm -hmm. I think that's incredibly important. I think so too, and you do that really well. If you want to go back and listen to the one that we did about uh, Maundy Thursday, mm -hmm. our Easter episode, you'll see how these things tie together. And I, I was kind of struck by two points. Number one being very similar to what you just said. When someone does come to Christ, they they are going to begin reading the Bible. Correct. And so, you know, we don't just want Christians now to read only the New Testament. We want them to see. Right. We believe that all every word of the Bible is God's word. All of it is inspired. All of it is useful. All of it is breathed out by God. So we want them to take advantage of the fact that we have this entire Bible. It tells a complete story. So we don't want to jettison any of that. The other thing, though, that I thought about is, um, you know, when you become a Christian, your story now is also, uh, Israel's story is now part of your story. That's right. So Good you point. are, it's, it's very naive and honestly very um, short-sighted to pretend like we have nothing to do with Israel, historic Israel now. Because their story has is, is part of our story. So... You are true Israel if you are in Christ. And that includes what happened before you became a Christian. Right. It's like getting married to someone and saying, look, I don't need to know anything before the day we met. Mm -hmm. I mean, you fall in love with the person that you know, but you are just insatiable, curious about how did you come to be who you are? What happened? Where were you born? What were your formative things? I think when you become a Christian, it's... It really would be unnatural mm -hmm. to not want to know what happened before I met you. What yeah. what got us here to this place? I think right. that's very natural. Yeah, I think so too. But I think it's I think it is perilous to overlook something right. uh, something like the whole history of what God did up until the time you became a Christian. I don't think that's a very good strategy. No, and you know, I do think reading the Gospels, you know, the Scripture's in layers. It's a book you can read, unlike any other book, you can read it all your life and see deeper and deeper treasures in it. For example, you can understand the ministry of Jesus on the surface, but not until you read the book of Exodus do you realize, oh my goodness, God is far deeper playing a far longer game than I ever thought. Yeah. Uh, you know, I really think the more you read, the deeper you go the more awesome God becomes. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. And I hope that as you guys, hopefully some of you will read Luke this week, even if you don't make it all the way through, straight through Luke. That's, that's a big <laughs> ask. But as you read Luke now and in the future, hopefully we've achieved our goal. And that would be that it is no longer your least favorite or unanimous consent, least favorite gospel. So hopefully uh, this raises your opinion of the gospel of Luke. And we will see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.
Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Thank you.